0: Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Thursday, August 6th. power to much of New York is still out. Animal Crossing is very much in, based on new Nintendo earnings. And we're focused on what's left of America's middle class. Several times this week, we've noted on the show that Washington, D.C. remains deadlocked on a new stimulus package with neither Democrats nor Republicans seeming to feel the urgency of unemployed Americans who aren't sure how to afford their rent, their food, or other basic necessities. In case you'd somehow forgotten, unemployment remains a huge problem in this country. 1.2 million new unemployment claims last week, which was the pandemic era's lowest weekly total, but still 1.2 million. Even if we get a big beat tomorrow on July's jobs number, It's a lagging indicator that won't reflect recent reopening reversals or businesses that have been paying people with PPP loans that recently ran out. So back to Congress. Eviction moratoriums? We don't know. Extended unemployment benefits? We don't know. A new small business loan program or direct checks to taxpayers? We don't know. Extra funding for schools or local governments? Well, you got it, we don't know. And that uncertainty, that delay, is having real and possibly long-lasting impacts, particularly on America's middle class, which was already shrinking before the pandemic. To go deeper on this, I'm pleased to be joined by Jim Tankersley, an economics and tax policy reporter at the New York Times and author of a new book about the middle class called The Riches of This Land. So Jim, your book, talks about the middle class. Since nine out of 10 Americans think they're in the middle class, how do you define middle class right now?
1: Great question, Dan. I define the middle class as sort of a security sense that Americans have. It's not like an income that we can define very narrowly. It's more, can you afford a house? Can you afford a car? Can you afford retirement security and education for your kids? Are you comfortable enough that you can survive a crisis? And we're in a crisis right now that has just laid bare how many Americans were sort of on the edge of falling out of the middle class and probably have just in the last few months.
0: Your research found that there were several myths surrounding kind of what's good for the middle class in terms of strengthening the middle class and growing it. Can you share what you think is kind of the most urgent myth that is worth busting?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the urgent myth that's worth busting is this idea that certain groups of workers are in competition with other groups of workers, in particular, that white men are having their jobs taken away by immigrants and women and black workers. And in fact, the opposite is true, that across American history, the middle class has boomed the most and done the best when all Americans have gotten ahead. Specifically in the post-war era, we had this amazing movement of civil rights that produced real progress, where women and men of color were able to get jobs they had never been able to compete for before. And because of that, they made the entire economy more productive, grow faster, everybody's incomes went up. So my big myth to bust is the idea that we're not all in this together, that actually the way to restore the middle class is to invest in each other.
0: So, Jim, when you look at what the federal government has done in the early part of this pandemic, do you think it's been effective or has some of it maybe been a little too top down? For example, you talk about how the middle class kind of depends in part on where you live, but that extra $600 in unemployment insurance, for example, that's for anybody, whether you live in New York City or whether you live in rural Oklahoma.
1: I would look at it this way. We have done a lot as a country in the first parts of the crisis to try to ford people through it. And we did actually a lot for the people who were most at risk in terms of income. The supplemental unemployment was a big deal for the first few months. But no, we have not done enough, in particular, if you look at the business owners or the workers who are disproportionately non-white, who were most at risk of falling off the cliff here. And we have not saved them the ranks of essential workers who are more at risk of contracting the virus are disproportionately black and Latino. The businesses that receive PPP funding were disproportionately white, white owned. And so yeah, when we look at who has capital in this country, non white Americans started this crisis with way less wealth with way less income. And we have not done enough to forward them through so they can build that up going forward.
0: We're in the midst right now of these kind of phase four stimulus negotiations in DC, which don't seem to be going terribly well. We're definitely not going to have anything before the official Senate recess, even though they'll probably stick around. Are you concerned or should people be concerned that in these weeks, as these negotiations get longer, that there could be permanent or at least very long lasting damage by having that month without those extended unemployment benefits or other things like that. In DC, they look and go, okay, we missed it by three weeks. But for individuals, this could have ramifications for months or years.
1: It's a wonderful question that is unfortunately, I think, really, really a big problem right now. We already know there's permanent damage being done. For as much as Congress has spent so far, there are still, I saw estimates from a George Washington University economist today, 400,000 businesses that are closed that are not going to reopen. That's a huge amount of business that's already dead. And the risks rise every day of more businesses that maybe got loans the first time but aren't able to get help the second time going under. The same is true of people. We raise this real risk of people being thrown out of work, not being able to get new jobs, their skills atrophy, they have a hard time competing for new jobs going forward. We saw some of this coming out of the last recession. And I really worry about it. I really worry about the permanent damage to people and businesses and communities for years and decades to come.
0: Jim, you talked earlier about what you call kind of this myth of individual competition, you know, somebody quote, taking somebody else's job. Is there also a myth when it comes to what we're seeing in D.C. about big business versus small business? You know, if the airlines get 25 billion, then that's not enough for small business. Is that competition a legitimate thing or is that also a myth?
1: I think a critique that I have of maybe the way that the media has, and, and me included, have covered this crisis so far is we paid a lot of attention to businesses who perhaps you know are bad look recipients of government health and not enough attention to the businesses that didn't get any help at all. So yeah, I think I think a wider net of supporting business. I mean, this is a totally unprecedented for America crisis where we basically turned off the lights on the economy on purpose. And now we were supposed to wait in the dark patiently until it was safe to come out. And we didn't give all businesses enough help to get through that. There's just a lot of companies that through no fault of their own, their entire business model is gone right now. And yeah, I think that we lose a lot if we don't help them get through this.
0: Jim, we are going to get on uh, the July jobs report tomorrow. Below the headline number, which you know your newspaper, Axios, will you know put the unemployment rate, how many people lost their jobs or gained jobs in July, inside that report, when you grab it from BOL, what will you be looking for?
1: I think there's two things that are really big and important for the policy debate in Washington right now. One of the big things is the state and local government layoff numbers. They've been bad so far. They are almost certainly going to get much worse. There's a chance that with some seasonal adjustments, they won't look as bad as reality this month. But I think if they look very bad, that's just more of a sign of real pain to come cascading pain in local areas, you know, your local school laying off teachers just as they're trying to figure out how to do much more difficult online or whatever instruction. I'm going to watch that. And then I think the other thing is just the pace of job creation. The economy really appears to have slowed down. The recovery has slowed down, stalled out even in June. And if this is a disappointing jobs report, that could change these stimulus negotiations. On the other hand, if it's better than expectations, I think that will embolden the folks, particularly on the Republican side, who think, hey, maybe we've done enough and don't need to do any more.
0: Jim Tankersley, the book is called The Riches of This Land, coming out soon, but you can get it already on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back. What we're watching today are the Arbiters of Truth, as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube all removed a video of President Trump claiming that kids are, quote, virtually immune to COVID-19. In short, all three platforms deemed it to be misinformation on a matter of vital health since kids are neither immune nor virtually immune to the virus. Twitter has removed Trump tweets before, but this was new for Facebook and YouTube. I asked Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher, what it means for Trump and what it means for the platforms. They're setting a precedent that moving forward, they're going to be willing to remove posts from elected officials, from candidates that violate their rules. In the past, they have not been willing to go this far. They might add a warning label, they might fact check it, but they haven't pulled this stuff down. If you pull it down, that severely limits the reach of the misinformation that they're trying to spread. Today, it might be about COVID, but tomorrow it might be about mail-in votes, or it might be about something else. It's a significant step in silencing misinformation from world leaders. We're also watching the California Public Employees Pension Fund, or CalPERS, where Chief Investment Officer Ben Meng suddenly resigned. The official reason is that Meng wanted to spend more time with his family, but the move comes after reports that he had personally bought stock in private equity firms that had business in front of CalPERS. Why it matters? CalPERS is the largest public pension fund in the country, and its investments help secure the retirement for nearly two million Americans. Finally, we're also watching the future of the National Rifle Association. After New York's attorney general filed a lawsuit to dissolve the group, Claiming its senior leadership diverted millions of organizational dollars for personal use. For its part, the NRA is already saying it will fight back in court. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Schovers and Naomi Shaven. And speaking of Naomi, she's going to be guest hosting for me next week while I am at the beach. So look forward to that. Have a great National Root Beer Float Day. And Naomi will be back with you Monday with another Axios recap.